Hello, and welcome to State of Crime. One state, two murders, a whole lot of crime, with Kaylin and Elena. Hi there. Hi there. So, I actually, I just thought about the fact that I literally don't even know the name of who you're covering. I know. We, well, because when we talked, when you told me your case, um, I still had it picked mine. So, oh, there you okay. go. That's, yeah. That's how on top of things I've been this week. So I mean, I was sitting at the computer desk two minutes before I left the house jotting down notes. Okay, still. good. So, <laughs> so I feel like we're both as unprepared as... as I, saw, I saw a meme floating around. It's like, mama did, my mama didn't raise no quitter, but she did raise a procrastinator. My life. Yeah, yep. us. That's yep. why we get along so well. Yep. So, um, just uh, for our listeners, we are doing a follow-up on the Jennings 8 case. Right. We have been in contact with somebody that um, has some firsthand knowledge and some ties, some ties the to the case. And we just want to make sure that we keep this case alive. There is also a Facebook group that I joined, um, the Unsolved Jennings 8, um, that another listener emailed us about. Right. And I wanted to thank them as well. And I did join that group just because I just... This is such a heartbreaking case. It is. And especially after talking to somebody who knows some of these people, you know, I think from the get-go, you and I have said that, you know, we do try to keep the victims a part of it. Mm -hmm. it you, you do have to have a certain amount of distance to talk about these things. Otherwise, I think you you get too emotionally connected, to connected it. Right. And, and it just gets too much. It's too upsetting, you know, but... I also want to make sure, though, that we do always kind of honor the victims and keep them in mind. And I am glad that you and I have had many conversations about the fact that too often victims are kind of pushed to the side, especially when they are women who were involved with drugs and or sex work, as were many of the Jennings eight. And then, you know, people just find it too easy to say, oh, it's a high risk lifestyle or, right. you know, and I, and how much we hate that. And it's unfair. And, and that is something that you and I talked about big mm -hmm. in one of our discussion episodes mm -hmm. when we talked about the prostitution yes. and stuff like that. Yeah, so and that, that, you know, we felt like it should be legalized and that, right. you know, just to get a lot of the stigma away. And I just, I feel that way even more strongly after right. having this conversation. And, um, yeah, I just, ugh, it's infuriating. Right. And I'm kind of glad you brought this, this up mm -hmm. again because you did just have this conversation a couple days ago, mm -hmm. right? Well... My case this week kind of a tiny bit. Oh, okay. Resembles the Jennings eight on a little. Oh, okay. On like a small scale. Alrighty. Right. And that's funny because my case has, which I definitely have themes going through all of my cases, but um, my case is has a lot in common with my Minnesota case that I just did. There's some parallels there, and to again some other things that as we get into you're going to definitely recognize. And if we have listeners out there who've listened to a couple of my episodes, we'll go, oh my God, here she goes again. Right. So, Also, I would like to apologize for not getting Thursday's episode out on <laughs> Thursday. That was all Kaylin, people. It was. It was all me. I <laughs> got caught up in the Thanksgiving festivities. And by the time 
I had gotten near my laptop. I had zero time to actually do anything. It was like I had to run into my house, change, and then leave my house. You were fine. And so I just like to give you grief because, you know, I love you. But it got, it came out. I got it out. Woohoo! So. All right. All right. So this week we are in Kentucky. Because that's what Kayla chose last time. It was the first one on my list. It was the first date I saw. So and I that was like, totally fine. Yeah. No, I like that. So. So my case this week is known as the Ashland Tragedy. Oh. And it is seasonal. You'll find out what I mean by that in a little bit. Like I said, there's a lot of ties to several of my other cases that will very quickly become apparent. I just remembered that we have a lot of, we've had some murders, we've had an assassination, mm -hmm. we have had annihilations. This is our first tragedy. Yes. Well, <laughs> although it is a murder, well, yeah, by the way. But and, this is the yeah. only one that has been titled yes. a tragedy yes. versus... A murderer. Or That's an true. Or That's true. Like that. It is interesting how so many of these get named too. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like right. the names that get tied to them. And there are also folk songs that are written about this one. So now I will say partially because of my own procrastination, um, but also I had a hard time finding a lot of good details out here on my case. So I really want to thank, there's a YouTuber named Bella Fiore. She's from Britain. She has a very interesting accent, um, like even amongst British accents. Like I really want to know exactly what her accent is. So I watch some British reality TV, oh, and I've realized people with Essex, Essex accents uh -huh. are fascinating. Are they? Because they normally talk like super fast, uh -huh. and their words like kind of slur together, and so it's kind of hard to understand them, but just the way it sounds is fascinating. Yeah. Well, hers is really cool like that, too, because like there's a thing, and this is even on the East Coast, where if a word ends with a vowel and the next word begins with a vowel, they'll put that R, you mm -hmm. know, between it. And she does this, though, but even, like, in the middle of words, it was really weird. But anyway, <laughs> um, and she's beautiful and wonderful and does a great job. So. Oh, my gosh, your notes. I know. I can't. I have these giant pieces of paper that I'm using because I've been mind mapping and sketch noting. I'm very into this lately. So, anyway... Um, her, she's got a great YouTube channel, Bella Fiore, and she did a really great job with this case. I got lots of information, although the family's name was Gibbons, and she kept saying Gibson, and I don't know if, again, that was just, you know, a dialectical thing or what, but anyway, um, we are going to the town of Ashland, Kentucky, hence the name, the Ashland Tragedy which is located on the southern bank of the Ohio River. So this is up in the part of Kentucky that, I guess, if you go across the river, you're in Ohio. So it's very close. Um, today, Ashland, as of the 2010 census, is a community of 21,684. But we are traveling back in time to 1881. Okay. When its population was only 3,000. And it was still... <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we had to take a break because <laughs> I looked over and Kaylin's sniffing her armpit in the middle of my case. So I just had to figure out if I remember to put the other <laughs> on before. I we had to go have a, a freshening up moment. <laughs> I'm dying. Or, I don't know. Okay, so anyway, back to 1881. Right. When Ashland, Kentucky was a town of 3,000. And 
as many people are probably familiar with in Kentucky and Ohio, the two main industries at the time were coal and pig iron. So um, we are going to, the reason my case is seasonal is it takes place on December 23rd. Right before Christmas. And this had to be the worst Christmas ever for our families. So Families. Yes. Okay. We have two Multiple. families that are affected. So <clears throat> now, given the name the Ashland Tragedy, you would think possibly that this was like some huge, you know, devastating case. And obviously it is for the people involved. But we have three victims. We have two members of the Gibbons family. Brother and sister Robert, who everyone called Bobby, 17. His sister Fanny, 14. And Emma Carrico, who most often, I guess, went by the name of her stepfather. She used her stepfather's name of Thomas. And I didn't find an exact age on her. I'm assuming she was at probably around 14 as well, because she and Fanny were really, really good friends. So I'm thinking they had to have been, if not the same age, very close. So the Givens family were very, very well known in the community. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think they had a certain amount of social standing. But Martha and her husband, John Gibbons were estranged. And in fact, at the time that this happens, it didn't appear to me that John was even living with the family. At least he wasn't around when this happens. Okay. And apparently they were barely even on speaking terms, Martha and John. So, um, so like we said, Martha and John are the parents of Bobby, 17, Fanny, 14. And they have another son, Sterling, who's 11. And Sterling lucked out because he was not home when this, this tragedy happened. Um, Bobby had lost his leg. And so he had actually, I don't know how old he was when this happened, but he had fallen in front of a railway car that was being pulled and he lost his leg. Jeez. Yeah. And I think we forget just how dangerous railroads can be. So for instance, my uh, grandma had a brother and <clears throat> my dad grew up in a small town uh, called McCammon, Idaho, which is just south of Pocatello. Okay. And of course... People in Idaho know Pocatello is a huge railway, right. railway town. And anyway, her brother and his friend would, because McCammon's like, I don't know, like 15, 20 miles from Pocatello. So they jump the train all the time because <clears throat> it slows down there in McCammon. And as it slowed down, they jump on the train and ride it into Pocatello, which, you know, people right. it hear sounds these stories. Like, it sounds fun. Yeah. It sounds like a really fun thing sounds to do. Sounds fun. But it also sounds very dangerous. But don't, yeah, exactly. Don't do it. Because one time her brother didn't quite make it and slid under and he was cut in half by the train. Oh. Yeah. So really horrible, horrible right. family story. Um, anyway, back to our case. Uh. So Fanny is described at the time as being beautiful, outgoing. She was sweet. She was popular. It sounds like Emma was also very much the same. Just two lovely, beautiful girls. So Fanny and Bobby Gibbons' mother, Martha, went to the neighbor's house. And that's Emma. I'm just going to call her Emma Thomas to keep things easier. Right. Um, 
went to visit her friend, Mrs. Thomas, and they lived right across the street from the Gibbonses. So it makes sense that, you know, Fanny and Emma would have grown up together, were good friends. And so Martha was going to take 11-year-old Sterling and visit a town called Ironton, which was, I guess, just across the river. So she wasn't going really far to visit some friends. It sounds like it was like a day trip, you know, sort of thing. Um, and of course, you know, Bobby's 17. He's old enough for right. her to stay alone. So when she stops in to visit with Emma Thomas's mother, I guess she tells her about the trip, whatever. And then they decide that maybe Emma should go across the street and stay with Fanny and Bobby because, like we said, you know, Bobby had lost a leg. And it seems like, you know, he could do things, but they felt like, well, you know, Fanny might need some help with some of the housework right. and sort of stuff. So, of course, Emma's all excited. You know, they're going to get to be kind of grown-ups for the night. Excuse me. So she goes across the street to stay with them. And... There's not a lot of reports about that evening, although neighbors do say that, you know, and of course Emma's mom is looking across the street at the house, you know, and everyone says, you know, they could hear them laughing. They were obviously playing games. Like we said, it's almost Christmas, you right. know, so everyone. And I mean, they're like right across the street. So like how. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so everyone's excited and happy, you know, those sorts of things. So nobody thinks anything of it. This part is crazy to me. Emma's mother wakes up at 4 a.m., which was normal for her, to start doing her household chores. Thank God we don't live in the 1880s. Seriously. I, I would could die. I would too. So, anyway, she gets up at 4, looks out across the road, sees nothing, everything seems fine. And I guess she goes about doing whatever you do at 4 o'clock in the morning in the <laughs> 1880s. Um... But around 6 a.m., she starts to notice this weird flickering light coming through the window. And she looks across the street, and it's the Gibbons house, where her daughter is. And it's in flames. So she runs out in the street screaming, of course, you know, trying to wake the neighbors. And they call a fire brigade, which, you know, like we said, Back then, that's all volunteer. Takes a while for them to get there. Right. Especially in the early morning hours when yeah. people are probably still sleeping. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, if she gets up at four, who knows what time Who knows what's going up. on in this crazy time and place. Anyway, but the house is pretty much engulfed quite quickly. It sounds really bad. And it's not until they get the fire put out that they find the charred corpses of... Bobby, Fanny, and Emma. Sad. Yeah, horrible tragedy. How old was Emma? How old were they again? Uh, Bobby was seventeen. Fanny was fourteen. Emma was around that age too. Okay. So, um, and of course, you know, people's first. You know, I mean, as horrible as this is, fires were not unusual back then. People are still using you know, gas and coal oil and things like that to, you know, people have fires in their homes, you know, burning all the time. Right. They cook with fire. So it's not that unusual, unfortunately, for house fires to happen and for people to die, right? So at the beginning, everyone that's what everyone thinks, that 
you know, this is a great tragedy. They died while they were sleeping during a house fire. However, and this is why it's so important to have well-trained professionals who do the job of coroner or whatever. Although my understanding is this was kind of just the town doctor who investigated the bodies. And the bodies were described as being pretty badly burned. So there's part of this I'm, I'm questioning. But the one thing he does notice is that all three of the bodies, the skulls are caved in. So that immediately makes him suspicious. So somebody beat them upside the head and then set the house on fire to make it look like they died in a fire. Exactly. Which is what we talked about in your last yes, case. Yes, right? right, yeah. And right. that's what I said. That's kind of like my Minnesota case right. where you have a house fire and then later you find out, no, these people were murdered. Right. Um, and according to the Bella Fiore YouTube channel, um, he also notices that the girls have been sexually assaulted. Now, this is the part where I'm wondering, because I'm like, supposedly the bodies were pretty badly burnt. So how would he have known that? And I don't know if that's an assumption that he immediately jumped to. I don't, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know what state exactly the bodies were in. Right. But that's what's said. So, of course, like we said, this is a smaller town, around 3,000 people. Everybody immediately is like, how could this happen in our community? You know, Fanny and Emma and even Bobby, it seems like we're all just really nice kids. Nobody could figure out why anybody would want to target them in this way um, and all of that. So as they investigate the house further, so like I said, it couldn't have been completely destroyed because they do find bloody pillowcases and sheets, and they also find an axe and a crowbar. You and your damn axe murderers. I told you, here I am again. I'm telling you, <laughs> the Google algorithms have figured me out, so they just automatically lead me to these Historic things. Historic families, fires, axes. There That's you go. That's all you need. Yep. The only thing I'm missing this time is a German immigrant. For real. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, and what's a little bit strange, though, is that, you know, because it said earlier in the evening, people heard them laughing and giggling and all that kind of stuff, but there, nobody in the area reported hearing any screams or commotions of that sort. So the mayor of the town immediately calls a meeting and they raise funds, and it seems like they raise somewhere between one and three thousand dollars, which would be between twenty-two and sixty-six thousand dollars today, and they want to, of course, offer a reward for any information about this crime. And this was interesting to me. Towns back then, and we've talked a lot about how police forces didn't necessarily cooperate very well with each other. Right. So a lot of smaller towns like this, when they felt like you know our local police department's just not equipped for this. They had to raise the funds themselves and hire private detectives. That seems <clears throat> not. I know. Is that weird? Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know the word that I'm trying to like come yeah. up with, but that just doesn't seem right. Yeah. I guess. That's weird. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So <clears throat> they do this and they hire this guy named J.D. Morris comes from Ohio and he immediately does the modern sort of thing where you blame the dad, right? And so he immediately just says that 
John Gibbons is his number one suspect. He's talking to the press about this, how it was definitely John who did this. So another kind of a semi-family annihilation. Right. Um, and his estranged wife, Martha, does not help either because she also is talking to the press and anyone who will listen about how John had these spells of insanity, that he would threaten to kill the family and burn the house down. And then, just like with the Minnesota case, because he can't be found anywhere, people say, well, he killed himself. And <clears throat> Martha even says that he, in fact, would threaten to kill himself in a local pond which was then dredged so they could look for his body. You know, like I said, she's not helping the case at all. And luckily, aside from hiring the private investigators that the town did, there is a federal marshal who gets involved in the case. Okay. And his name is Heflin. And he knows how to do his job. Yeah, because it sounds like J.D. has no idea what the hell no. he's doing. So he tracks... John down in Maysville, which is about 90 minutes away, like if you drove it today by car. And he does find John Gibbons and tells him what has happened to his two children. John had no idea. And that became apparent, I guess, immediately for Heflin when he breaks the news to him. And so it, and then it even turns out that at the time of the crime on the 23rd of December, that um, John was in West Virginia. So he's immediately cleared. cleared. Morris leaves town in disgrace, you know, because he's an idiot. And Heflin takes over the case. It sounds like that's a good idea. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So around this time, or shortly after, you know, around the same time, there's a guy named George Ellis. He's a local bricklayer. He goes into the local general store to buy cigars. And, of course, you know, it's a general store, that old-timey thing of it being kind of the center of the town gossip. And whoever the clerk was who was helping him um, notices that he seems kind of nervous and jumpy. And when, you know, and of course, everyone's talking about the case. And that really seems to kind of upset George Ellis. He starts kind of mumbling under his breath when people are talking about it. And shortly after this, people aren't sure if George Ellis just went to Heflin of his own accord or if possibly the guy working in the store who helped him with the cigars went to Heflin and was like, hey, this guy's acting shady. And that maybe Heflin kind of summoned him to talk to him. In any case... We do know that George Ellis goes to Heflin and talks to him. And he questions him a little bit about, you know, how do these legal things work? And Heflin explains, well, yeah, obviously, even if somebody's involved in the crime, but they give evidence, they usually get a lesser sentence. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, this is when Ellis starts talking. So he claims that while working as a bricklayer, Two of his co-workers, a guy named, whose last name was Neil and another guy's last name was Kraft, were talking about how they wanted to have sex with Fanny and Emma. That they had seen these two girls 
and they were both like, especially I guess Neil had been bragging that he was going to have sex with Fanny before Christmas. Okay. And that um, they, and this is where at first he's not real clear about how he gets involved in it. But at any rate, Ellis claims they kind of rope him into it. And they say that, and they tell him that on the 23rd that they're going to take some lollipops and go and have sex with these two girls, which, yeah, weird. And so Ellis claims that he gets kind of roped into this. Later on, during the trials, he claims that, like, they threatened him at gunpoint, which, why? why? You know, there's right. something here that do, it, that doesn't sit right. Someone's not telling the whole story. There's yeah. There's more to the story than he's letting on. Exactly. In any case, Ellis claims that they go to the Gibbons house around midnight on the 23rd of December, um, that they break a window with an axe. Ellis claims that at first he stayed on the porch and then at some point later entered the house. And again, there's some weird gaps in his story. We'll talk more about those later. Um, he claims that Bobby woke up when he heard the no noise, but that Kraft told him to stay down and that Kraft went over and started to rape the girls. I Maybe with Neil, I'm not exactly clear. That when the rape starts to happen, Bobby does get up and tries to defend the girls and that Kraft hits him in the head with the axe and kills him. And then Neil attacks Emma because the girls start screaming after they attack Bobby with the axe, knocks her down to the floor, forces Ellis, who somehow is now in the house, forces Ellis to hold her down while he rapes her and then kills her with the axe by hitting her in the head. So what confuses me a little bit is that they had said before that they could hear them laughing and playing, but nobody heard the screams. That's unusual too but again you know what if they're asleep though because like i said they don't get to the house till after midnight if right. people were already asleep in their house you know they would have had everything battened down you know what i mean like they wouldn't right. have been checking in the same yeah. way they had been earlier in the evening yeah so um craft then tells ellis to hold fanny and she is killed with a crowbar then Kraft and Neil decide that they want to make sure that both these girls are dead. So they start bashing all the bodies in the head with axes just to make sure that they got the job done. Jesus. Yeah. Um, they force Ellis to pour coal oil over everything because coal oil, of course, is a fire accelerant. And then Kraft starts the fire so it'll look like an accident. So, like I said, the story itself, there's a lot of things here that are very problematical. Right. Yeah. I mean, the whole idea of, you know, these two guys make a plan to go in and rape these girls, but they decide to rope a co-worker in. Which doesn't make any sense, because why rope somebody in, especially if... Because they claimed that he was a co-worker. Mm -hmm. They didn't say he was a friend. Right. So why are you going to pull in someone that you don't even know if you can trust? Yeah. So something seems off there. I feel like right. he's not giving the whole truth. Yeah. I think he was more involved and from the, the whole, beginning. Yeah. And the whole thing to me, just the whole thing of doesn't make sense as far as, I don't, you, you know what I mean? Like, 
I, I don't know. There's just something here that the motive never makes sense to me in this you case. Know. Okay. At any rate, after Ellis tells this story to Heflin, Kraft and Neil are both arrested. They're taken to the Catlettsburg County Jail, which is about six miles away, because like we said, Ashland is small, probably doesn't even have its own jail. Here's what's weird. All three of them are put in the same cell. Why? Yeah, that seems like really shoddy police work. Like, why do you put the informant in with the two guys that he's Because the informant's now going to be dead. Well, no. But Ellis does recant the next day. Of course he fucking does. For the first time. Surprise. Well, with this being such a small town, did they have more than one jail cell? Well, but they're or, in Catlettsburg, oh, I which guess was, you're right. they, you know, they have a county jail there. Right. So I'm okay. assuming, but I don't know. Right. Um, and immediately they're having problems with mobs forming. So they decide that they're going to move these three to Lexington okay. the next day. And I guess they do try this. And there's all kinds of crazy things with this story as far as whenever they're trying to move prisoners around, which they end up having to do a lot. And there's also a lot about mob justice in this case, you know. So you and I have talked a lot about how, of course, we all have those feelings, you know, where we're Public not... Games. Yes, where we're not happy, you know what I mean? And people, you know, get angry and upset. This is a prime case of why that's a bad idea because it makes law enforcement's job so much harder. harder. Yeah. Right. So anyway, they end up trying to move these guys there's a chase on a steamboat oh my apparently. gosh <laughs> yeah um and then reporters were actually allowed onto this steamboat to meet the three prisoners um neil and Kraft were shackled together ellis was by himself off to the side which makes more sense at this point neil and Kraft, when they're talking to the reporters are laughing they're claiming that they're innocent, that they'll be found innocent. Ellis is off to the side, and he, even though he tries to recant again later on, but he, he even when at this point, he's saying, even in the presence of Neil and Kraft, you know what you did, sort of a thing. Um, and then he, around this time, tries to recant again. He claims that Heflin threatened him with a gun and which again doesn't make a whole lot of sense so we get to our first trial on january 16th 1882 so this is very very yes, quick very quickly like um, weeks yes damn yeah although the parts of this are going to go on for the next three years so it's not as slow as a lot of modern justice i guess but still slower based on what happened here right um neil goes on trial first there is some conflicting testimony some people are claiming no i saw him here i saw him there you know which would make it impossible for him to have been at the house but george ellis testifies he's very calm on the stand but i still think he's lying yeah i don't trust this dude because even though he's calm on the stand and most of his testimony matches that very first story that he told Heflin way back in the beginning, but he changes a couple things. He claims that Kraft 
forced him at gunpoint to join them, which wasn't part of his original story. He changes the timeline a little bit. Um, he moves it from Bobby awakening as soon as they enter the house to Bobby not awakening until they start raping the girls. There's some things like that. But he does stick to his story that all he did was help hold the girls down and pour the coal oil. Which again, it's still... I. I don't really believe that. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, it just seems... And even if it is true, you still held the girls down to be raped. Yes. Yes. Which... So, like, yeah. not much better... Right. ...than, you know what I mean, than mm -hmm. actually doing... Than actually raping them yourself. Like, you're still holding them down and letting it happen. Exactly. So... You're, you know, because you could have left at any time or... Right. It, there's just so much that does not make sense here. He claims also, for the first time that I know of... That after the murders and they set the fire, that they ran to a local cemetery and that Kraft and Neil tried to make him sign an oath of silence, which does not make sense either. But um, very shortly, less than a month later on February 6th, after 17 minutes of deliberation, he's found guilty and Kraft... Um, Kraft and Neil go on trial separately. They are separate trials, but it seems to me they must have been almost concurrent. Gotcha. You know? um, but anyway, both of them are found guilty very quickly. They're both sentenced to hang on Valentine's Day, but they're going to appeal and get new trials. So Ellis, again, like we said, keeps recanting, claiming he was forced, that he didn't really do anything wrong. And Except for hold two little girls down to be raped. Exactly. Like, Ugh. I don't see how he keeps trying to get around that. You right. Know? Um, I think it would have been different had he not been involved in anything but starting the fire or pouring the accelerant. Or, like, after. Like, they right. yeah, called him in after. Look what we did. Or Right. And even then, still. Right. But, like, you were there and you helped these mm -hmm. two little girls down I, to I really raped. feel like that all three of these men were involved. Right. I wonder, there had, there's never any mention in anything I saw of robbery as a motive. So maybe they did. Maybe these three guys were just like, hey, you know, the boys only got one leg. The girls are easy pickings. You know, I, I don't know. And because the murder is so brutal too. Right. So I'm not sure at any rate. Ellis's trial starts in May. He is sentenced to life in prison because probably of his confession. Even though he recant, I feel like because he recanted mm -hmm. so many times, mm -hmm. they should have just made him hang with the other two. Well, you're not the only one. So very shortly after his trial, 20 men form a mob wearing hoods. They take the train to Catlettsburg where he was put on trial. They grab him, take him back to Ashford, and tell him that, yes, he deserved to hang just like the other two. Ask him if he has any last words. He says no. They hang him in a tree. like they, And, of course, they don't use a gallows. They do the, the nasty strangulation. They string him up. They leave him up there for a while. Then they lower him to the ground. And ask him again, do you have any last words? Oh my gosh. Yeah, so this is pretty awful. And 
He says, no, just if you're going to hang me, just get it done. They grant his wish and they hang him in a sycamore tree, which is about 100 yards from where the Gibbons house had stood. And they just leave him there. The coroner has to come and cut him down. Jesus. So at this time, have the other two still, they're, they're still alive because they're appealing. So, yes, okay. because they're appealing. So even though Ellis gets the lesser sentence. He's the first one to die. He's the first to die. Huh. And that's because of mob justice. Now these mobs are not done. I imagine not. Yeah. And it gets way worse. I'm assuming they're going to get to these other two before they get their new trials. Mm -hmm. okay. Well, no. So we have the new trials for Kraft and Neal and he, the timeline gets kind of fuzzy. I'm just going to kind of do an abbreviated version of this because okay. I don't want to get too lost in the weeds on this. And during both of their retrials and the subsequent things that happen, Ellis's testimony is in fact questioned, especially because he kept changing the story, the details changed, you know, people feel like maybe he did this alone and he's just trying to frame these people, although that seems kind of unlikely as well. Now, Neil had no criminal history, but Kraft did, so... There's that part of it, too. Um, and so what happens is they decide that they can't try them locally. And again, they're, they're asking for new venues. They're granted the new venues. And in November of 1882, a mob of over 200 people break in to get to these guys and three people end up getting killed, including a 14-year-old boy. So this is why I'm saying it gets very awful because mob justice, like I said, I know that we all have those wishes sometimes, but it's just not the right thing. So three people ended up dead, two of our two... No, and they, they're all members. One of them was a guy who was trying to protect the prisoners. He colonel somebody. And I believe that like the 14 year old boy may have been a member of the mob. Gotcha. So the so, other two were mm -hmm, members of the mm -hmm. mob and then the one. Colonel. Yes. Okay. Yes. And so then, um, both Neil and Kraft do both end up finally getting retried and both are in fact sentenced to hanged. But even after the attack of this 200 person mob, they were talking about that during one of the retrials, which takes place later in the winter, they had to have so many guards around the jail. And then I guess the weather conditions were very cold, even though it's Kentucky, but um, and some of them died from exposure because they had to stay out in the cold protecting the prisoners. And it got very, very ugly. But by 1885, both Kraft and Neil, all of their trials were completed. Justice in this case, you know, was served in the legal way that it's supposed to be. And by 1885, both of them had been hanged for the crime. And that was the end of the Ashford tragedy. I think it's weird that people were trying, that... People were trying to say that he, I don't remember his name. The Ellis. Ellis. There you go. Um, that he did everything by himself. But that doesn't make any sense to me. 
because why would he himself go to the cops? And if he was trying to set someone up or frame right. someone, why would, why he, would say, he involve himself? Exactly. That's why, my Why wouldn't he say too. like, oh, I walked by and I mm -hmm. saw this instead mm -hmm. of like, oh, hey, I was there when they did this. Exactly. Like, why involve yourself if you are trying to frame other people? That's my thing with the framing theory as well why wouldn't you just say hey these two dudes did it i saw them i heard them talking right you know at work that they wanted to go get these girls sort of a thing that so would make more sense for whatever weird twisted reason i really believe all three of these guys decided we're going to do this horrible thing and then for whatever reason i think ellis's conscience whatever shreds there were left of it did feel bad enough and I think he also decided hey we're gonna get caught so I'm gonna get myself the best deal I can yeah maybe I don't know but in any case a horrible tragedy I can't imagine losing two you know your right. children at Christmas time and right I mean your children at any time right much no less yeah Christmas yeah, yeah. That was sad. A sad story. And there, there's a very famous folk song. You can look it up about the Ashford tragedy. I will is, actually probably look that up because yeah. I, I like folk music. Yeah, and it's this wonderful, like I looked at it too. It's this, you know, big, long ballad. You know, and it's funny how many of these old cases have folk songs or poems associated with them. I know clear back with my New Mexico case, mm -hmm. there's, you know, a folk song about that. And of course, everybody knows the Lizzie Borden rhyme, right. which came out with the murders. I mean, Lizzie Borden heard that rhyme when she walked through the streets of right. Fall River, Massachusetts. So, but yeah, are you looking up the folk song? I am going to, yes. <laughs> so. uh, if I can, I might play a little tidbit of it at the end of this episode. If, if I can, can find if it. I can get... A okay. piece of it, yeah. Yeah, and like I said, and our listeners, that you can Google it very easily as well. Yeah, so. I'll listen to it later. But yeah. if I can, I'll add, I'll add a little chunk of it to the end of the episode instead of our normal outro music nice. that we use. So, yeah. so once again, I did, you know, families getting killed with axes. Although we threw in a crowbar this time for a little yeah. variety. So I am have to say, like I've been fascinated because we think of, especially in the United States the 1800s, everybody had a gun. And that's really not true. You know, guns were really expensive, as was ammunition. Right. And so honestly, you you know, they're like workers, bricklayers like these guys probably didn't have one. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, it wasn't as common as you would think watching old westerns and things like that. And so, you know, because the prevalence of axe murders is just, mind-boggling to mm -hmm. me and this is why again they were easy they were right there you know so yeah but yeah. it was a good it was a good one it's a sad one it is sad so uh, make sure you go join our facebook discussion group you can like us on facebook and follow us on twitter and instagram and if you're listening on an apple product make sure you go into your apple podcast and rate and review us it helps us out a lot also i don't know if this is true but i heard a little rumor that if you hit subscribe and or unsubscribe and then subscribe again it helps our it helps boost our <laughs> stuff so if you're already subscribed just unsubscribe and resubscribe yeah be really shady since this is a true crime podcast just <laughs> throw your morals and honesty out the door just to help us but at the same time they're not hurting anybody so why not <laughs> it's a slippery slope my friend slippery slope all right so we will be back on thursday with my kentucky case yep 
And I think that's everything. All right. So thanks for listening.